Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. We at Theopolis train men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. Here, we're continuing our series with James Jordan in the book of Exodus. And here, Jordan's going to be in Exodus chapters 13 through 18, covering the journey to Sinai. We really hope that you are sharpened by this time of teaching, and we want to thank you so much for listening. And here is James Jordan in the book of Exodus, chapters 13 through 18. We'll start at the end of chapter 13, starting in verse 17. And this is after the people had uh, departed from Egypt, or organized themselves and left the land of Goshen. And we have, first of all, their encampment at Etham. It came about when Pharaoh had let the people go, that God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, even though it was near. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war, and they return to Egypt. In other words, the Philistines would have fought with the people, and God wanted a chance to build them up. These people were not warriors. They had been laborers for a century and it's necessary for them to be formed up and shaped into an army, and God intended to give them a year of a military boot camp in the wilderness while they were camped at Mount Sinai in order to make them into an effective fighting force. Doubtless some of the mixed multitude, some of the converted Egyptians who went along with them, as well doubtless as some of the Israelite males would have had some military experience and would be able to train the rest. But that training would be needed and God intended to have them camped at Sinai for a year while they learned how to do it. Of course, it turned out that they wandered for 38 or 39 years, for a total, actually, of 40 years between their exodus and their entrance into the land. At any rate, God graciously preserved them from war, and so God did not take them up through the Philistines, but led them southward, around by the way of the wilderness, to the Red Sea. And the sons of Israel went up in martial array, from the land of Egypt. That is, they were five in a rank. So they did make a military formation as best they knew, and the men marched out of Egypt. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for he had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely take care of you, and you will carry my bones from here with you. All those centuries, the sarcophagus of Joseph had been a memorial and a witness that someday they would leave Egypt. And now that day had occurred. They set out from Succoth and camped in Etham on the edge of the wilderness. And the Lord was going before them in a pillar of cloud by day to lead them on the way, and a pillar of fire by night to give them light, that they might travel by day and by night. He did not take away the pillar of cloud by day, nor the pillar of fire by night from before the people. Are these two pillars or one? In my opinion, almost unquestionably one pillar. The pillar of cloud and fire is the Shekinah glory. And in Ezekiel chapter 1, we have a picture of that. Ezekiel sees a cloud, and then inside the cloud there is this fiery furnace appearance, and then God is enthroned there with the cherubim. And this pillar is God's chariot with the cherubim, the cloud with the fire inside. Now during the day when it's bright, you wouldn't see the fire, you'd just see the cloud. But at night when it's dark, you wouldn't see the cloud, you'd see the fire that shone from inside the cloud. And so that's almost unquestionably what's pictured here. And it was not only God's presence with them in the Shekinah chariot glory, but it was also 
uh, way in which God cared for them in the wilderness. Isaiah chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, says that in the day that God renews Mount Zion, he will put over her assemblies a cloud by day, even smoke, and the brightness of a flaming fire by night, for over all the glory will be a canopy. So this is the same cloud, only not standing up like a pillar, but spread out like a canopy, cloud by day and fire by night. And it says it will be a shelter to give shade from the heat by day and refuge and protection from the storm and the rain. So in the desert, when it's hot during the day, the cloud gave them shade. And when it was cold during the night, the fire gave them heat and light and protected them from the extremities of the wilderness. Well, that's what the pillar chariot was, and that's what it was doing, leading them on to the promised land. Now we come to chapter 14, and we have Pharaoh's pursuit in verses 1 to 14. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Tell the sons of Israel to turn back and camp before Pi-Haharoth, between Migdal and the sea, and you shall camp in front of Baal-Zephon opposite by the sea. And Pharaoh will say to the sons of Israel, They're wandering aimlessly in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. Uh, That's the way it would look. And God says, Thus I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will chase after them, and I will be honored through Pharaoh and all his army. And the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. So that's what they did. And they kind of moved from place to place. It looked as if they were wandering aimlessly. And the king of Egypt heard about it, and he had a change of heart and got his own chariot ready, took his people with him. He took 600 select chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over them. And he chased after the sons of Israel as the sons of Israel were going out with a high hand. So it looked like they were wandering aimlessly, but in reality they were in martial array. The Egyptians chased after them with horses and chariots of Pharaoh and overtook them camping by the sea. And as Pharaoh drew near, the sons of Israel looked, and behold, Egyptians were marching after them, and they became frightened. So they cried to the Lord, and they said to Moses, Is it because there were no graves in Egypt that you've taken us away to die in the wilderness? Why have you dealt with us this way, bringing us out of Egypt? Isn't this the word we spoke to you in Egypt, saying, Leave us alone, that we may serve the Egyptians? It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. But Moses said, Do not fear. Stand by and behold the salvation of the Lord that he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you have seen today, you will never see them again forever. The Lord will fight for you while you keep silent. So there were a certain number of people who immediately complained against Moses in the situation, and unfortunately that will be the history of this generation as we know. Well, Pharaoh pursues, and then we have the crossing of the Red Sea and the remainder of this chapter. The Lord said to Moses, Why are you crying to me? Tell the sons of Israel to go forward and lift up your staff. This is the rod of God. And stretch your hand over the sea and divide it. The sons of Israel shall go through the midst of the sea on dry land. So we have an image of new creation here, dry land emerging from the sea. And then we'll have an image of decreation as the sea once again covers that land and sweeps away the Egyptian host. As for me, I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them, and I will be honored through Pharaoh and all his army. The Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I am honored through Pharaoh, through his chariots and his horsemen. And the angel of God, who had been going before the camp of Israel, moved and went behind them. The pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, so that they came between the camp of Egypt and the camp of Israel. And there was a cloud and the darkness, yet it gave light at night. Thus the one did not come near the other all night. 
Apparently, it gave darkness to the camp of Egypt and light to the camp of Israel. But God put a distinction between them and moved himself between them, showing a hard face to his enemies and a merciful face to his children. Well, then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord swept the sea back by a strong east wind all night. That same east wind that God used to bring the locusts now divided the sea and turned the sea into dry land so that the waters were divided. And there wasn't any mud. The water was pulled right out. And the sons of Israel went through the midst of the sea on dry land, and the waters were like a wall to them on the right hand and on their left. Then the Egyptians took up the pursuit, and all Pharaoh's horses, chariots, and horsemen went in after them into the midst of the sea. And it came about in the morning watch, the day of the Lord and the day of judgment. The Lord looked down on the army of the Egyptians through the pillar of fire and cloud and brought the army of the Egyptians into confusion. And he caused their chariot wheels to swerve. He made them drive with difficulty, so that the Egyptians said, Let's flee from Israel, for the Lord is fighting for them against the Egyptians. We're told in the Psalms that as Israel went through the Red Sea, God rained on them, and apparently that rain increased until the ground became muddy and the chariots began to be swamped. Uh, that's in Psalm 77, starting in verse 16. The waters saw thee, O God, the waters saw thee. They were in anguish, the deeps also trembled. The clouds poured out water, the skies gave forth a sound, arrows flashed here and there. The sound of thy thunder was in the whirlwind. Thy lightnings lit up the world, the earth trembled and shook. The way was in the sea, and thy paths in the mighty waters. Thy footprints may not be known. Thou didst lead thy people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. And so... Apparently there was some rain that came down while they crossed through, a baptism by sprinkling, as we believe, while the Egyptians were washed away with too much water. Now, that's what happened first. Their chariots were swamped. And then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch over your hand and over the sea, so that the waters may come back over the Egyptians and their chariots and horsemen. So the Egyptians are going to be drowned. And Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. The sea returned to its normal state at daybreak while the Egyptians were fleeing right into it. And thus the Lord shook off the Egyptians in the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen, even Pharaoh's entire army that had gone into the sea after them. Not one of them remained. Since Pharaoh was with him, that means that he drowned too. And we'll come back to that in just a moment. But the sons of Israel walked on dry land through the midst of the sea. The waters were like a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore, ready to be eaten up by those dogs that we talked about last time. And also uh, their corpses were ready to be spoiled of military gear that the Israelites were going to need. Well, a couple of comments here. Remember that the Egyptians threw the Hebrew babies into the Nile River. Now it's the Egyptians who are washed away in the Red Sea. A second comment I just said is that Pharaoh himself almost certainly drowned here. Unfortunately, the chronology of ancient Egypt is so confused that neither liberal nor most conservative scholars are able to take this seriously. Many liberals are convinced that Ramesses was the Pharaoh of the Exodus, and since he did not die a violent death but had a great empire... This just couldn't have happened this way. Conservatives generally say that Thutmose III 
was the Pharaoh of the Exodus. And similarly, he died at a ripe old age and had a nice great empire. And so the picture of what happens to Egypt in the book of Exodus doesn't fit. There have been reconstructions done by Velikovsky and Corville and others. And your bibliography will give you a little bit of places you can go further on the reconstruction of Egyptian chronology. But basically, we need a pharaoh who dies and at the end of whose reign the entire nation of Egypt was devastated. Remember what's happened here. All their crops are destroyed. Virtually all their animals are destroyed. Virtually all of their young men are destroyed. Their entire army is destroyed. Almost certainly the Pharaoh himself is destroyed. And the people have given away lots of their gold and silver and whatnot to the Hebrews who have left. All their slaves and workers have left. Mixed multitude has left. Now, the only other thing we're going to find is that as the Jews come out, the Amalekites are going down. And the Amalekites were extreme savages who were going to go down and devastate Egypt even further. So Egypt is utterly destroyed by all this, according to the Bible. And if the Bible is true, and of course we believe it is, then it's necessary for us to find somewhere in the confusing chronology and king lists of Egypt, we need to find a situation where Pharaoh dies, and with him dies his dynasty, and Egypt goes into chaos. And as a matter of fact, Corville points out that with a little bit of common sense, the king lists of Egypt can be restored. And this actually initiated what is known as the Egyptian Dark Age and the reign of the Hyksos, who were the Amalekites, Semites who came in, conquered and devastated Egypt for a long period of time. Well, I just bring that up here by way of parenthesis. Uh, unfortunately, all the commentaries that you pick up, with the exception of what I've written on the subject and what Gary North has written on the subject, every commentary that you read will have difficulty along these lines because they're unwilling to accept a revised chronology at this point. They've crossed the Red Sea, and now the Egyptians are dead. And finally, in this section, leaving Egypt, we come in chapter 15 to the song of the sea. It's appropriate to sing a song of praise to God when his enemies are destroyed and we are delivered from oppressors, and we have it here. This song, I won't read it, you can read it. There are singing versions of it, but they're hard to get hold of. It has basically three stanzas and then an epilogue. The first stanza, I will sing to the Lord, for he's highly exalted. The horse and rider he is hurled into the sea. And it goes down to verse 6, and that's the end of the stanza. And toward the end of the stanza, we have the phrase, they went down into the depths like a stone. Then the second stanza starts in verse 7. In the greatness of thine excellence thou dost overthrow those who rise against thee. And it goes down to verse 11. Who is like thee, majestic in holiness, awesome in praises, working wonders. And just before the end of that stanza we have the statement, They sank like lead in the mighty waters. And then stanza 3 is from 12 to 16. And again the stanza ends with the statement, By the greatness of thine arm they are motionless as stone. So each of the stanzas ends with a reference to the Egyptians sinking like stones down to the bottom of the sea, down into the deep. And then we have this epilogue in verse 17, Thou wilt bring them and plant them in the mountain of thine inheritance, the place, O Lord, which thou hast made for thine dwelling, the sanctuary, O Lord, which thy hands have established. The Lord will reign forever and ever. And so they're like a new garden of Eden that are going to be planted in the mountain of the Lord. 
And we read in connection with this that Miriam, the prophetess, Aaron's sister, took a timbrel in her hand, and all the women went out with her dancing and saying, Sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted, the horse and his rider he has hurled into the sea. Well, that's the song of celebration and the dance of celebration, and apparently it was the custom here for the men to sing and the women to respond with dancing to the song sung by the men. We wouldn't have to take this as absolutely a rule for worship or anything like that, but it is the pattern that we see here. We come now to the second section of this overview tape, and that's On to Sinai. Now that we're out of Egypt and the Egyptians have been destroyed, we move on to Sinai. And there are a number of events here, each of which was designed to teach the people something about God and his provisions for them. And the first is the Mara incident given us in chapter 15, verses 22 to 26. Moses led Israel from the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness of Shur, and they went three days in the wilderness and found no water. When they came to Marah, they couldn't drink the waters of Marah because they were bitter, which is why they named it Marah, or Mary, which means bitter. And the people grumbled at Moses, saying, What shall we drink? And he cried to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a tree. He threw it into the waters, and the waters became sweet. And he made for them a statute and a regulation, and there he tested them. Well, the leaves of the trees are for healing, according to Ezekiel 47. 7 and 8, the tree of life. And that's what this is an emblem of, that God is a tree of life to his people. And with its medicinal effects, we'll turn the salt water to sweet. And this is a sign to Israel that if they put their trust in God, God will provide water for them. Man was given water in the Garden of Eden. There was water freely available. Once he was cast out into the wilderness, then the water was no longer readily available. A lot of the water can't be drunk. Sometimes that you can't find water at all. And you have to ask God for daily bread. Man does not have life in himself. Man has to go and get life from God. Life comes from the outside to man. Man is not self-sufficient. And that's the meaning of food in the Bible. You have to get life from God from outside yourself. And so they had to go to God to get the water healed. And once they had done so, or Moses did so, they grumbled at Moses, but Moses prayed to God, and the waters were healed. God said, verse 26, If you give earnest heed to the voice of the Lord your God and do what's right in his sight, give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you which I have put on the Egyptians, for I, the Lord, am your healer. So the tree signifies God and the healing work that he does, and the water signifies their life. The diseased water is like the diseases of Egypt. But if they'll be faithful to God, then he will heal them just as he healed the water. Well, that's the bottom line. The bottom line is you have to be faithful to God. Well, then we have a snapshot of their ministry here in verse 27 at Elim. They came to Elim where there are twelve springs of water and seventy date palms, and they camped there beside the waters. The twelve waters are for the twelve tribes of Israel. It's the covenant number. And the seventy day palms are for the seventy nations of Genesis 10. And this is a picture of Israel's ministry to the nations. God had told Abraham that you're to be a priest to the nations. And that hasn't changed. And so the water of life that Israel will have is to feed the nations of the world 
signified by these date palms. And that will be their ministry. Then in chapter 16, we have the story about the manna. They didn't have water, and they needed it because they didn't have life in themselves. Now they need bread. We pray, give us this day our daily bread, and that's what they needed as well. They needed bread from God. It says, they set out from Elam, and all the congregation of the sons of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the fifteenth day of the second month after their departure from the land of Egypt. And the whole congregation grumbled. And the sons of Israel said, We wish we died when we sat by the pots of meat when we had bread to the full, for you brought us into the wilderness to kill us with hunger. Now you get the impression that they didn't have anything to eat. But in reality, they had cattle and flocks and other things. They just weren't willing to kill their own herds. And the reason why is also, it's quite reasonable that they wouldn't want to kill their herds, because if they do, then there's nothing left to go on. You don't just slaughter your herds and eat them one after another, then you have nothing left, and then you can't rebuild. And so the economic crunch is real. And, of course, they didn't have any bread because there wasn't any grain out in the wilderness. So God says, Behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them whether or not they'll walk in my instruction. And it will come about on the sixth day when they gather what they bring in. It'll be twice as much as they gather daily. Now, there are two things that are taught here by this. The daily provision taught them that God is faithful. Day by day, he is faithful. And every day, there will be manna. And the exception on the sixth and seventh days taught them that God is holy. And that will become clear at the end of the story when some of the people go out on the Sabbath and try to gather it. In verse 28, the Lord said to Moses, How long do you refuse to keep my commandments and my instructions? So the exception taught them that God was holy. God is faithful. We can count on him. God is holy. We must fear and respect him. Well, we don't need to read the whole story here. We find out that Moses and Aaron spoke to the people, told them that they would see God's glory cloud, and they did see it. As they looked toward the promised land, they saw the glory of God appearing in the cloud. That's in verse 10. And God says that he will give them meat and bread. So quails come up and manna comes down. They didn't know what it was. They said, what is it? Which in Hebrew is manhu, and that becomes the name manna. Moses said, it's bread the Lord has given you to eat. There had been speculations as to what this might have been, but the bottom line is it was miraculous bread from heaven because it came for five days, and then on the sixth day there was twice as much, and on the seventh day there wasn't any. And so you've got to have a miracle for that, a miracle that went on for 40 years. And so there were other miracles involved. Some of the people gathered a lot. Some of them didn't gather very much, but when they got it home and measured it, they all turned out to have just exactly what they needed. They were told not to bother to leave any of it till the next day, or it would get bad. And that was because it was daily bread, and they were supposed to trust the Lord for the next day's bread. They gathered twice as much on the sixth day. Then they set that aside, half of it, for the Sabbath day, and it did not become foul. And as we've seen, some of the people went out on the seventh day to look for it in disobedience to God. And the people rested on the seventh day. Then in verse 31, we read that the house of Israel named it manna, and it was like coriander seed, white, 
and his taste was like wafers with honey. Now, that's because it's a foretaste of the promised land, the land of milk and honey. And it tastes like honey as giving them a foretaste of the promised land. Some of it was set aside and put in a jar, and when the tabernacle was built, it was put into the Ark of the Covenant. And verse 35 says, The sons of Israel ate the manna forty years until they came to an inhabited land. They ate the manna until they came to the border of the land of Canaan. Man does not have life in himself, and he has to go to God, the tree of life, to find his daily bread. And that was the message in the wilderness right off the bat, to teach them to turn to God for life before they took up any additional responsibilities. And we've seen that at the waters of Mara, and we've seen it in connection with the food of the manna, and now we see it with water again at Meribah, chapter 17, verses 1 to 7. Then all the congregation of the sons of Israel journeyed by stages from the wilderness of sin, according to the commandment of the Lord, and camped at Rephidim. There was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water that we may drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and they grumbled against Moses and said, Why now have you brought us up from Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried out to the Lord, saying, What shall I do to this people? A little more, and they will stone me. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pass before the people and take with you some of the elders of Israel and take in the hand your staff with which you struck the Nile. So that's Moses' staff that he initially used to initiate the plagues. And behold, I will stand before you on the rock at Horeb, and you will strike the rock, and water will come out of it that the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. Now let's examine the details here. First of all, he's told to take the elders of Israel along with him. And he's to take the rod of God. Now, both of these things are judicial images. The elders are there to form a law court, a law court that would pass judgment. And the staff that Moses wields is the staff of judgment. God says, I will stand on the rock. So that the cloud, this glory cloud of God, came down and became small enough to stand on the rock. And Moses was to take the rod of judgment, the same rod that judged Egypt, and bring it down through that cloud and onto the rock so that God himself was struck by the staff, by the rod of judgment, in the presence of this law court. And what did that mean? Well, it meant that the Jews deserved to be judged for their rebellion. But God took upon himself the judgment that they deserved. He was their rock, and he was split in half for them, just as Jesus was cut on the cross and water came out from his side. And God himself, in the cloud and in the rock, took the judgment that they deserved. The rod of God's own judgment was turned against himself as a substitute for the people. And that is what made possible giving them the water Otherwise, it was not possible. They were in sin, and they deserved to be cut off from the Edenic waters forever. But because God took the judgment that they deserved, it was possible for them to be given water. Another picture of redemption, something that they could learn from. Well, then we have the story of the attack of the Amalekites. Then Amalek came and fought against Israel at Rephidim. 
Now, who are the Amalekites? Numbers chapter 24, verse 20. Numbers 24, verse 20, has a prophecy by Balaam against Amalek. He looked at Amalek and took up his discourse and said, Amalek was the first of the nations, but his end is destruction. Amalek was apparently the first great empire in the world, but it was also the heir of Cain and of Nimrod. Thus the Amalekites hated God worse than any other race. And the first thing that they did when the Jews came out of Egypt was attack them. Now, historically speaking, it's apparent that the Amalekites were heading down to Egypt. They were savages. They knew that Egypt had been devastated. A few weeks have gone by here, and now they have heard the word, and they're going down into Egypt to become the Hyksos dynasty, as best we can tell. Well, Moses said to Joshua, Choose men for us and go out and fight against Amalek. Tomorrow I will station myself on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. And Joshua did as Moses told him and fought against Amalek. And Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. It came about when Moses held his hand up and the staff stretched out, you see, the rod of God's judgment. When Moses held his hand and the staff stretched out, then Israel prevailed. And when he let his hand down, Amalek prevailed. Moses' hands were heavy. He could keep switching the rod from one hand to the other, but he was getting tired. He was, after all, 80 years old. They took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. And Aaron and Hur supported his hands, one on one side and one on the other. And his hands were steady until the sun set. So Moses apparently had the staff in one hand and the other hand raised up too. And Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. Well, again, there's two pictures here. One is that hands lifted up represent prayer. Psalm 63, verse 4, as well as comments in the book of James, tell us that. I lift up my hands in thy name and bless thee as long as I live. And James says, pray with hands uplifted. So the lifting up of the hands is prayer and dependence on God. And the stretching out of the rod, it means that the battle is the Lord's. And both of those things are pictured here by Moses' actions. And as long as Moses' hands were up expressing dependence on God and trust that it was his battle and his staff, then the battle went well. But when Moses' hands went down, indicating that we were relying on the flesh and that it's our battle, then the battle went against them. Happily, assistance came and assisted Moses in his struggle, and the battle went with the Lord. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this in a book as a memorial and recite it to Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and named it, The Lord is my banner. And he said, Because the hand of Amalek is against the Lord, the Lord will have war against Amalek from generation to generation. And you can trace this theme through the Bible. King Saul was told to wipe out the Amalekites, and he failed to do so and was judged for it. David fought against the Amalekites repeatedly, but the final destruction of them doesn't take place till the book of Esther, where the final remnant of the Amalekites attacks the Jews and is finally destroyed. Well, at last we come to chapter 18. Just before they reach Mount Sinai, they are joined by Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law. And he comes for a visit. We find that Moses had sent Zipporah and their sons away, possibly because they were circumcised and incapacitated, 
He didn't take them down into Egypt or possibly during the months of the plagues he had sent them back to Jethro. But Jethro now brings them to Moses and Jethro camps with Moses and the people. It says in verse 9 that Jethro rejoiced over all the goodness that the Lord had done to Israel in delivering them from the hand of the Egyptians. And he blesses the Lord for delivering them. Verse 12 says, Then Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, took a burnt offering and sacrifices for God. Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat a meal with Moses' father-in-law before God. So Jethro actually leads them all in worship and sort of shows the superiority to his priesthood over that that's going to be set up under Aaron, just as the priesthood of Melchizedek was superior to that of Aaron. That's possibly what's indicated here. Well, then we have a well-known scene in verses 13 and following. It came about the next day that Moses sat to judge the people, and the people stood about Moses from morning till evening. And when Moses' father-in-law saw all that he was doing for the people, he said, What is this thing that you're doing for the people? Why do you alone sit when all the people stand around you from morning till evening? And Moses said to his father-in-law, Because the people come to me to inquire of God. When they have a dispute, it comes to me, and I judge between a man and a neighbor, and I make known the statutes of God and his laws. So there are two things Moses is doing. One is he's acting as a judge and settling disputes. And secondly, he's acting as a teacher and telling them the law of God. And these are two problems that need to be taken care of. Moses' father-in-law said to him, The thing you're doing is not good. In fact, it's impossible. You'll surely wear yourself out, both yourself and these people who are with you, for the task is too heavy for you. You can't do it alone. Now listen to me and I will give you counsel. You be the representative of the people before God, and you bring the disputes to God, and teach them the statutes and laws, and make known to them the way in which they're to walk and the work they're supposed to do. So the first thing Moses is supposed to do is teach the people the law. And this sets us up, you see, for the giving of the law in chapters 19 to the end of the book of Exodus. The other problem is judges. And that's set out in verses 21 to 22. Furthermore, you will select out of all the people able men who fear God, men of truth, and who hate dishonest gain. And you will place these over them as leaders of thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens, and let them judge the people at all times. Let it be that any major dispute they will bring to you, but every minor dispute they themselves will judge. It will be easier for you, and they will bear this burden with you. So the two problems, we need judges and we need teaching in the law. Jethro says, look, you teach the people the law, but you set up a whole bunch of others to be judges, an ascending series of courts to carry out all these petty judgments that are coming before you. And so Moses did that, and he set the people up this way. And then Jethro departed and went back to his own land. One final comment on this chapter before we're done. We've said that in the process of the Exodus, God takes hold of the people and he pulverizes them and restructures them. And that restructuring takes place here politically. We no longer have 12 tribes and then a whole bunch of servants with them, or 12 actual household members of Israel with their servants. We now have 12 tribes, and there's no distinction apparent between those who are literal descendants of Abraham and those who are descendants of Abraham's servants. And whatever distinction there might have been seems to be eliminated by this, that it's not on the basis of the blood of Abraham or any type of royalty idea that might be there, but entirely on the basis of merit moral merit that men are selected to be judges 
And these judges run in these ascending series of courts, tens, fifties, hundreds, and thousands. And that restructures the nation politically and gives it a completely different complexion. Well, the message on the way to Sinai was that you have to come to God for life. God is going to give them a whole bunch of laws and teach them how to have dominion and all these other things, but none of that counts if you haven't come to God for life. Worship is primary, and they must confess that they don't have life in themselves and be thankful to God and ask Him to provide for them. And they've seen that He will do so if they trust Him, that He'll defeat their enemies. And now He's begun to rebuild their nation, reconstitute them as a nation. The old patriarchal system won't work when you've got two million people. And so Jethro restructures them into a new political order, and then God gives them the law. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.